Good morning. Welcome to our service this morning. Um, whether you're joining us online or whether you're with us here in Daravolga, it's great to have you with us and sharing with us. Um, I was thinking this week uh, as I looked out on the snow, uh, it made me think of uh, what we've been studying last term uh, when people were unable to get into worship or to get to, to, to be with their uh, colleagues in church. And, uh, and that made me think uh, when I came up around here and uh, they couldn't get down the hill. Uh, and I wondered um, how that would make us feel if we were unable to get to worship or and how whether we would go ahead and praise God and organize things in our homes or whatever. Uh, it, it seems such a strange time, but it is wonderful that people are still wanting and willing to come together and to praise God. And I'm thankful this morning that we are able to get here and that we're able to be together and to praise God and uh, that we have a great privilege in being here this morning and being together with our friends and being able to share in the worship of God. As it says in Isaiah chapter 42, sing a new song to the Lord, sing praise all the world. We have a chance here to open ourselves to God and to praise him for what he has done and to give him thanks for what he has given us. Um, Heather's going to come and read for us now <clears throat> from our reading from uh, 2 Corinthians. If you want to follow from the Pew Bibles, um, you turn to page 1158. And we're starting at verse 12. Now, this is our boast, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say, yeah, yes, and no, no. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. But the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy was not yes and no. But in him, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in christ and so through him 
the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You can continue to follow along in your Bibles if they're in front of you there. Um, please don't rush to put them away. They are laid out again this morning for you uh, to use and to make use of and to follow along as we delve into God's Word and engage with uh, this passage of Scripture. One of the things that's added into these Bibles that wasn't necessarily in the first transcripts uh, was these small headings. And the headings are quite helpful for us at times in terms of understanding what a passage is about. And so in this passage, it begins with the heading, Paul's Change of Plans. Um, this is a story about Paul changing his, his plan to go and visit uh, this group of believers. Uh, it is him breaking a promise to them. And when he does so, people begin to question him. They begin to question his character based on the fact that he would break a promise. We find out later on in verse uh, 23, which is slightly outside of our reading, um, that the reason for breaking this promise and the reason for not visiting the people was he did so in order to spare them, uh, and that is why he did not return to Corinth. He did so because he was looking out for them and choosing to do so out of what he felt were their best interests. Yet, this, the church in Corinth at the time begins to tear itself apart. Uh, people begin to question his character as they put their faith in a leader and not the leader of the church. They begin to put all of their hope and trust in the identity of a mortal instead of trusting in the identity of Christ and in the identity of God. If you follow along, we can split this passage almost within two. <clears throat> we have our first section in 12 to 14. And in that first paragraph, we begin to see Paul's defense of what is right, of, of here is where we put our trust and our boast is in Christ. And then beyond that, he goes on to say, here I am. Now this is where we put our trust, but beyond this, here is where I am. Paul puts out a statement of where we should put our faith and then a statement of where he is coming from and the reasons for his decisions. He looks very closely at purity in this passage, what it means to be pure. When it comes to purity, one of the first things that comes to my mind when we think about, well, not, not one of the first things, but when we think about purity, we think sometimes about gold or diamonds or expensive, valuable items and what it means for us to understand the purity in the process that it takes to make these items. I don't own very much uh, um, gold, and I certainly, I don't own any diamonds, but when I come to think of it, I think of my, my wedding ring, and I think about uh, buying Sarah's engagement ring. When I was 20 years old, uh, 20 years old, I decided to get engaged. Uh, who let a young man make that decision? Uh, my student loan came in one day, 
and two days later I took it to the jewellers and spent it all on an engagement ring and lived off beans and toast for the next quarter uh, to try and survive. Uh, but I remember going into the jewellers and I was looking at rings. I had been dropping a couple of hints with Sarah. I knew what she wanted. Uh, she wanted a single diamond and she wanted yellow gold. Uh, she wasn't interested in Haribo rings, much to my disappointment. But I went to the jewellers and it was an expensive purchase. And so I had done lots of research. I knew what I wanted. I had put my thought into it. And I got down to my last couple of options. And so the jeweler said, right, take these out into Lisburn Square and look at them in the sunlight. Look at how good they are. Examine them and see just how much they sparkle. And here I am standing in the middle of Lisburn on Bow Street with these three rings going, I could just leave now and make a solid profit off this. Um, but I went back in again and, and, and did make that decision to pay for them. But I put such research into it at the time that I became, well, how I felt, quite an expert. Uh, I began to understand rings and, and gold and carrots and purity, things that I've now forgotten. And I got so good at it that when some of our friends got engaged, uh, I was able to guess the value of the ring within about two or three hundred pounds, based on the amount of research I had put into this ring. It's the most expensive thing I've ever paid for with chip and pin. My finger hovered over the enter button, working out, did I really want to purchase this or not? And I pressed OK, and all was OK, but I got the size very wrong, so I had to then go back and pay for a resizing afterwards. She did say yes, as we're aware, which was uh, even more of a relief at the time. But we begin to think about purity, about what it means for these things to be pure, what it means for gold to be pure, the refining process that it goes through. What does it mean for nine carat or 18 carat? And what is it that we are paying for in these extra differences? What is it that we look for? And how do we define purity? Paul looks at two elements of purity. He looks at his actions and he looks at his motives. He looks at the things which he does and he looks at the reasons for these. We can see in this passage uh, that our conscience testifies we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that we are from God, not according to worldly wisdom, but to God's grace. He writes to people asking them to know that they can fully, in verse 14, as you have understand us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. That this is where we put our trust, first of all, in the purity of Christ, which is refined and understood to be perfect. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you uh, on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. When I planned this, did I do it lightly or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no. Yes, yes and no, no. He comes and he says, Here's what we're looking at. My actions were ones that were designed to be pure. 
The people begin to question what it is that Paul is doing. Why is he making these decisions? Are they making them for himself? Are they making them for reasons that he can gain from? What is it that he is doing? He's not misbehaving behind closed doors. He's not filling his life with things not of God and when people aren't looking. And this is what we're called for when we look at purity. That this is not a, a Sunday morning faith or a public faith that we come to at times of public expression of worship. But instead, this is a faith that we are seeking to explore behind closed doors when Christ can see us and in public when mankind can see us. You know, I find that the, the, easy, the hardest people it is to hide things from can be children sometimes. Children know our hearts and our desires and our intentions. They know if our actions are good or right or if we're doing these to hide things. Maybe that's a good place to look at when we think of why we're making our actions. What is it we are doing? And is that mimicking all that we do beyond? I find sometimes that uh, if I engage in a television series or a movie that isn't necessarily of Christ, sometimes my actions are then influenced by the things I'm doing behind closed doors as words begin to slip into my vocabulary or things that are not of God begin to slip into my actions. But instead, Paul was a man who filled his life upon God, put his boasts in Christ, put his value and his most important things in God first. And that reflected all that came out in his actions. His purity in actions meant that he was blameless in the questioning when these people come to question his change of plan. So the next thing they must question is then his motive, his intention, the reasons for doing these things. Is he seeking to fill his own desires or is he seeking to fill God's desires? And that's the second part of our purity. When we come to look, when I was looking at rings, there were rings that had less carrots, but maybe might have hidden the diamonds slightly more or crushed it down or spread it out to make it look like something was there, even though it wasn't. But the rings that cost more were the ones that held the diamond up for everyone to see, that you could see both the top and the bottom of the stone, that you could see all parts of it and explore that identity. You could see just how much it was worth and the craftsmanship and work that had gone into it. You could see the motive and intention, that nothing was hidden behind the surface. There was a philosopher at the time uh, that, that these scriptures were written and, and uh, he talked of someone coming to build his house and said, come, I can come and build you a house with hidden entrances, hidden exits. We can hide many things from plain sight and this is how much it was cost. And the philosopher instead replied and said, how much would it cost to build one where everything is visible, where man can see the inside from the outside? Is that what we seek in our intention, in our motives? Are we seeking people to see just the good bits on the surface? Or are we willing to reveal all that is deep within? Paul comes bringing himself before these people, allowing them to question his character, but also admitting his weakness. Also admitting that he comes from a position 
of a worldly background. He makes his plans in a worldly manner. In the same breath, he says yes, yes, and he says no, no. Sometimes we make plans with the best of intention, with good motives, with good character, but yet we're still forced to cancel these plans. We are still forced for our word to be taken against us. We are still sometimes making human mistakes. But Paul points us towards Christ. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among by, by Paul and by Silas and by Timothy, did not come with yes and no in the same breath. For it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. Paul comes with uh, James's phrase, preacher included, and comes and says, we are all in the same position in this, that we are here in the world saying yes and saying no in the same breath, that we come and we make mistakes. Yet when we trust in Christ, he is the blameless one who does not make mistakes, that we may always trust in, and the answer is yes, and the answer is amen. In Christ's word, there is a difference. We can read through the scriptures and see the promises that have been kept, the promises that will be kept, and trust that they will always be kept. When I stood on my wedding day, I made promises to Sarah. I made promises that were till death do us part. They were promises that uh, I intend to keep. We make promises with the best of intentions. Sometimes those promises are broken due to our earthly limits. But sometimes those promises are kept through our lifetime. Yet Christ's promise is one that goes beyond our earthly understanding. It goes on to an eternal promise, an eternal promise of not just what is, but what is to come. There's many reasons why we are told that we wear our wedding ring on this hand. Apparently, some tell us that it's because our heart runs directly down from our left side, down our arm, to our wedding ring. And actually, it's a symbol of arteries being connected directly to our heart. I'm not sure the, the truth in that anymore is totally proven. But perhaps it is a suggestion that our rings and our promises do have a connection to our hearts and to our desires. We're told sometimes it's because it's the weakest finger on our hand that predominantly for many people, you were forced to be right-handed so the left hand was the weak hand. Within, their, within many cultures uh, where there's, there's risk of infection and bacteria from some of the practices we do with our hands, your right hand is kept as the clean hand and your left hand is then sometimes weaker as it's used for tasks that uh, might be slightly more unclean. So it's the weaker hand, the weakest finger on the weakest hand. Maybe our rings are there to remind us that there's other people there to protect us and hold us and keep us strong. For that's Christ's promise to us as well. That as the bride and bridegroom as we are wed to Christ, that he is there to protect us and keep us strong. 
that actually are wet, that wedding rings are circles and many people talk about the fact that these go on forever, that a circle will go round and round and has no end, just as we are called to love others beyond limitations, beyond earthly restrictions, but to have an unlimited love, to have uh, an agape love, just as Christ would give everything for us. We are called to love others in the same fashion. But yet, what's most important to me about this object, this holds far more value to me than anyone in this room. That there are many objects in our life that have worldly value, but to me this represents something so much more. That this could be a Harry Bow ring. That this could be something which doesn't hold a worldly value. Yet to me it would still be the most precious thing that I own for the representation of what it means to me. For the representation of love. And that is the love that we all share. The love that we hold with Christ. The promises that he makes to us. The promises that we can stand firm in Christ. Let's look at verse 22 together. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This was very common practice for people to purchase things, but to purchase it in part. That when payment was made, the first thing you would do would make a small deposit. But once that deposit was made, you became the owner of that. If you went to buy someone's land, when you made the deposit, legally, that land became yours. Not when you made the final deposit, but when you made the first deposit. Whenever you began to work and toil the land, you might be able to earn back that extra money to then make the repayments in full. If you didn't make the repayments in full, there were repercussions and the land could be taken off you. But man wasn't called to make it to make up that money, first of all, they weren't called to make the full payment. There was a leeway, there was an allowance, there was a promise that the rest of the money would come. Christ has set his seal of ownership on us. He's put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. He has already purchased us. He already knows us. He is not seeking to know us more whenever we're perfect, whenever we're fixed, whenever we are in a position that we can come to him, able to offer him everything. He already has made that purchase. He has already made that sacrifice and he already knows us, owns us and loves us. When we say our prayers, we finish our prayers with, in Christ's name, amen. We don't do this just for tradition, but we do it in a trust and promise that in Christ's name, promises have been kept and will be kept. That in Christ's name, we are called to be pure. That we are called to have a purity that will get to know God better because that is how Christ has lived. We are called to have a purity that increases our value in ourselves. We are called 
to have a purity that increases our value and increases the attractiveness of our lifestyle to others. That as people look at us, that as people look at the difference in our lives, they may come to see Christ in that and know him more. We are called to be pure as Christ was, as Christ is, and as Christ always will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just as your servant Paul was willing to admit his weaknesses and his flaws, he did so in your name, trusting that he was following your desire for his life. May we come to know you more. May we seek to be pure just as your son was as he lived on earth. May the pureness of our heart and our actions in our intentions and our motives. Bring us closer to you. Help us to understand you more. And may we always trust that your promises are good, that your promises are true, that your promises are yes and amen. In Christ's perfect name we pray. Amen. Let's just pray together as we close. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this uh, gathering today. The opportunity to gather in your name um, and to declare our faith in you. Help us as we go from this place, not only simply to go, not to be changed, but to be changed and to go to change the community around us. It would be your eyes and your ears, your hands um, and your feet. Lord, as we go from this place, we think about our words, uh, our actions, our intentions, uh, Lord, that our integrity uh, would shine through, that we would be attractive to the world around us. And that your blessing, the blessing of Father God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would rest upon each one of us this day and forevermore as we go in your name. Amen. Amen.